Father, again, we come to you because we can come to you anytime, at all times, no matter where we are, we can boldly approach your throne. We thank you for that. And we ask that as we look into your word, you would bless this study, that I, though I fall so short, would not get in the way of your word this morning, but that your word would be clear to your people. Help us to accept your word as it is and to apply it to our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we uh, got into this situation that was happening at Corinth. If you remember, there's a man in the church who's causing some trouble. In verse 2, there's this mentioned of the one who is, uh, uh, maybe not verse 2, but there's a, a man who's mentioned who has caused sorrow. Verse 5, there it is. It's the upside down two. That's what I meant. Uh, the one who has caused sorrow. And it seems to me, I shared this with you last week, it seems to me that this is not necessarily the same man from 1 Corinthians 5 who uh, had his father's wife. It could be. But I think it's more likely that this is a man who was just causing division in the church, someone who did not like the Apostle Paul, and he made his feelings known, and he was influential, and he was causing division in the church. And last week, we really considered the situation from Paul's perspective, but this week, I want us to consider the situation from the church's perspective. I want us to consider how the church addressed this issue how the church should have addressed this issue, and what this church was called to do next. Let's look at verses 5 and 6 together again with that context in mind. 2 Corinthians 2, starting in verse 5, "'But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much, to all of you. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment,' which was inflicted by the majority. So, let's let's consider this punishment inflicted by the majority. The first half of the message today is about the disciplinary process at a church, because that's what Paul has in mind, that there was a man who was sinning in such a way that it called for a matter of church discipline. So, you can tell this morning that uh, we're not taking our cues from the seeker churches. We're not looking to, uh, you know, give you all the warm and fuzzies apart from substance. We're here this morning just to go through the Word of God, and this morning it has us talking about something that's not that fun to talk about. Something that you probably didn't wake up this morning and say, ooh, I wish there, I hope the message is going to be on discipline today, on how to discipline church members. That's not our goal to just preach on whatever we feel like. Our goal is to preach on what the Word of God says. So there was a man in the church who was causing division. Paul had written a harsh letter urging the church to take action with this man, and the church did respond. The church responded by inflicting some measure of discipline, as we just read in verse 6. And before we get too far down the road, we should notice again in verse 5 that this man caused sorrow, that this man's actions resulted in sorrow in the church. There was grief in the church because of this person's actions. Paul's letter was not brought on by his own sorrow, he clarifies in verse 5. It's not that Paul got his feelings hurt and so he wrote them a harsh letter so they would have their feelings hurt. Paul wasn't being uh, you know, vindictive or anything like that here. But Paul is saying, I recognize that sin in the church causes pain to the church. 
Division in the church causes sorrow in the church. And that prompted Paul's letter to them to say, you must take action against this man. Because this man hurt the whole church. You see again in verse 5, Paul says that this sorrow was inflicted to all of you, he says to the church. When you attack the unity of the church, when you seek to separate a, a unified church into teams, into factions, well, you're hurting everybody. You're harming the entire church. That's Paul's point. And yet, even though these believers took action against him, they were still enduring strife. They were still enduring competition, confusion, and spiritual pain because they haven't finished the process as of the, the timing of this letter. They had not yet finished the process that Paul had commissioned them to do. They had addressed the factious man in step one, that's confronting him, and it seems as though perhaps he was put out of the church. We don't have all the details here, but as you read through the passage, you can see that he wasn't feeling love, comfort, or forgiveness from the people, so it's quite possible that they told him just to leave. And that was step one. That's the initial process of discipline. But the church had not yet moved on to step two, and that's what Paul is focusing on in our passage today. That is only step one. There is another step that follows. You see, the church is not a business. We don't fire people in the church. As much as sometimes we want to just fire people, you can't just fire people because we are a family, aren't we? You can't fire family. Now, there can obviously be rifts. There can be issues. There's discipline that takes place within families. But the goal of church discipline is never a firing. The goal of church discipline is always restoration, healing, rehabilitation, not retribution, not vindictiveness, not unnecessary conflict. The goal is always restoration and disfellowshipping, having a separation of some sort, that's always the sad alternative. That is never the goal. That's always the, the sad alternative, depending on whether the sinner repents or not. Well, this church was still living in sorrow because they were living with that sad alternative. They had not embraced this man who apparently had repented. So let's focus on the nature of church discipline from other passages in the New Testament as we consider how church discipline is for seeking restoration through the discipline, not uh, to put someone out for good, but to seek restoration. And that restoration is always evidenced by repentance, and we'll talk more about that too. But turn with me, if you would, back to Matthew 18. This is the foundational passage. Matthew chapter 18 is where Jesus teaches us about church discipline. Our Lord, our God, talked on this very subject before there even was a church. <laughs> he gave us the instruction for church discipline. Let's read together in Matthew 18, starting in verse 15, and I'll read down through verse 20. Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed." 
If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Perhaps you remember that last verse, but forgot it was in this context. Well, this is the foundational passage for church leadership or for church discipline. Uh, There are steps given clearly by Jesus. This is step one, this is step two, this is step three, and this is step four. Notice from the beginning in verse 15 that Jesus puts as the goal the winning of the brother. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. That is the goal. The goal is restoration. But he goes through the process. If the one refuses to listen, it eventually ends up in this place where the church is involved and the church becomes aware. And the church now has a responsibility to confront the person. And if that person would not listen even to the church, notice how Jesus says, even to the church, then that person at that point is to be treated as a Gentile, a tax collector, you could just say as an unbeliever. This is Christ's prescription for church discipline. So it's very, very important that you remember that this is here with clear steps. What is the role of the people of God here in this process? I think you can see in the text with me that the role of God's people, the church, you could even say as it gets to that step, is to help push that church member toward repentance. We want to see that person repent of sin. Again, notice the first verse, verse 15. Jesus says, if he sins, not if he stops giving as much as he used to, (laughs) not if he wore something that offended you or said something that was just at the wrong time. This is sin. So you have to be serious about this. This isn't a, a preference. This is about sin. Well, the goal of the church is to push this member as far as it depends on them through the grace and power and love of God toward repentance. Now, let me point something else out here that's really important to dwell on. This only works if you care about your church. So, I think it's appropriate to maybe ask yourself this question from the beginning, to put yourself in the place of the one who had sinned, who's being disciplined. Would these steps work on you? Or perhaps would you find yourself at that final step and saying, nah, I'll find another church. Because you know that happens, right? You know that happens actually quite a bit. But what Jesus is presenting here is somebody who is so affected by the local church that that person is grieved to the point of repentance. That if the whole church is coming together and saying, brother, sister, you must repent, that that person says, what have I done? Not that the person says, forget you guys, you're hypocrites too, and then goes down the street. That's not what Jesus had in view. And, and I've had this conversation with people before when they ask, well, where does, where does the Bible say you have to go to church, right? Have you ever had that question come up? Where does the Bible say you must go to church? Well, there are certainly a couple passages to look at, but not as many as you might think. 
And that's because it seems to me that the Christian community was extremely important to the first believers in the first century, that they didn't have to be told to go to church, that they were actually risking their lives to be together. If you meet people in the underground church in China, North Korea, wherever our brothers and sisters may be under threat of persecution, you don't need to tell them to go to church either because they care so much about God and His people. And so these steps of church discipline only work if the person has a heart for God's people. And you got to keep that in mind as we think through this here this morning. The next passage I want us to see is in Galatians chapter 2. This is an interesting one, one you may not immediately think of in the New Testament, but it does qualify, I think, as church discipline. Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 11, Paul is recounting a story to the church in Galatia, and he says, "'But when Cephas,' that's Peter, "'came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face.'" because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel... I said to Peter in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, this is an interesting scene. You have one apostle standing up and calling out another apostle in front of people. Notice Paul throws in there, it was in the presence of all. He didn't say, Peter, come over here, let's go to the office and let's talk. No, 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 no. Paul just stands up and says, what are you doing, Peter? Now, I think this qualifies as if your brother sins, go and tell him his fault. Now, it wasn't in private, (laughs) but he was telling him his fault in the presence of all. It's a very confrontational account, isn't it? Apostle to apostle, Paul to Peter, but Peter was clearly in the wrong. And you know what? Repentance was still the goal. I think Paul's goal there was for Peter to repent and to change his hypocrisy. In the same book, go over to Galatians chapter 6, the end of the book, the last chapter. It's just one verse. It's a very important verse. The first verse of the chapter that sums up, again, the goal of discipline. Galatians 6.1 says, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual... Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, so that you too will not be tempted. Here's the big goal of church discipline. If someone is caught in a trespass, someone who's tangled up in sin, you who are spiritual, that means someone who has a level of maturity, someone who is able to do this, who has the knowledge from Scripture to do this, and someone who's experienced, go and restore the person. You see that? Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Now, the whole time, you have to beware yourself. In the Corinthians case, there was a man who was causing divisions in the church. He was a prideful man that was putting teams against each other, who was against Paul. And as someone went to restore such a man in a spirit of gentleness, how easy would it be 
for that person to also get caught up in the competition, to pipe off something prideful that he shouldn't say. Well, it'd be so easy, so, so easy. So in this process, we have to have humility, we have to have self-examination, we have to have gentleness. Two more. 1 Timothy 5, verses 19 to 22. 1 Timothy 5, 19 to 22. Again, a passage that you might not think of when you consider church discipline and the restoration process. But consider Paul's instruction to this young pastor about how elders are to be confronted with their sin. 1 Timothy 5, starting in verse 19. It says, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest will be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of His chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing from a spirit of partiality. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. So Paul is here saying that when an elder in the church, a pastor, is caught in sin, when his sin finds him out, and it's true, and the person, the elder, continues in sin. Uh, You notice that in verse 20, when he continues in his rebellion, the remedy is to rebuke in the presence of all. That would really spice up a business meeting, wouldn't it? There you are eating your Wendy's chili, and all of a sudden we got action. Rebuke in the presence of all. And why rebuke in the presence of all? See the purpose here, that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. So there's a, another element when it comes to church discipline, and you're dealing with the sins of elders in the church. And then finally, Titus, Titus chapter 3, just a couple pages over from 1 Timothy, Titus 3, verses 9 through 11. Here's yet another passage about how to deal with divisive people, sinning people in the church. Titus 3, starting in verse 9, it says, Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. One who creates division in the church... He's to be warned, but after a first and second warning, Paul says, verse 10, reject. That man is to be rejected. You can imagine this is to be like that last phase of church discipline that Jesus talked about. He's to be considered as even an unbeliever. And this man, it says in verse 11, is perverted and is sinning. He is self-condemned. This is extremely similar to what I think was going on in Corinth. The situation that Paul was writing about, someone who is being divisive, competitive, a factious man, he's perverted, he's sinning, he is self-condemned. Those are strong words, aren't they? Well, this isn't very fun this morning. We're not having a fun time yet, are we? (laughs) Isn't church supposed to be fun? Uh, Mixed responses there. Uh, I'll send out a survey in my email this week, okay? Okay. Well, let's consider this. Jesus Christ is building His church, 
not for the world to have fun. Right? You're not going to find that in the Bible. You just won't. In fact, what you'll find is that Jesus is extremely concerned with holiness in His church. Jesus is building a church that He desires ultimately will be pure, like without spot or blemish. Remember that language in the Bible? Pure. And you can perhaps take your mind back to the messages to the seven churches in Revelation. Jesus said, He who has an ear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you're hearing me this morning, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the church at Ephesus, He told them they lost their first love. And He says, repent or else. If they did not repent of the love that they had lost, Jesus said He was going to visit them quickly. Not that there would be a second coming, that big second coming event, but that Jesus would visit them in the sense that they would lose their influence, they would even maybe lose their existence as a church. Repent, Jesus says. To the church in Smyrna, Jesus said, overcome, keep having victory in this life by overcoming evil, overcome the forces of wickedness, press on. He didn't say, have fun, He said, overcome. The church at Pergamum, he told them, repent, you have false teachers in your church. Repent of the tolerating of this, but take the false teachers out of the church. The church at Thyatira, they specifically had a false teacher that Jesus referred to as Jezebel. And he says, stop tolerating Jezebel. And Revelation 2.21 is where he speaks to this. And he says to this church about the woman Jezebel, I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. So he tells the church, you have to do what you have to do to protect the holiness of the church. To the church at Sardis that the men just looked at yesterday at our breakfast, he says to them multiple times, wake up and repent. The church is to wake up and repent of the ways that they have strayed from their mission. The church of Philadelphia, they were doing well. He told them, hold fast. Hold fast to what you are doing. Protect what you have. And the church at Laodicea, perhaps you remember that church when Jesus says that they're lukewarm and he'll spit them out of his mouth. He tells them to be zealous for the Lord, to repent of their sin and to be zealous. Out of the seven churches to five of them, Jesus brought up repentance. What is Jesus concerned about? Holiness in the church. Purity of His bride. So pursuing purity in the church has to be our goal. And you know what? It's war. We are in spiritual warfare. We are in spiritual battle. The Bible uses this kind of language, that we are to put on the breastplate have in our hand the sword, put a helmet, the hope of salvation on your head, or to gird our loins for battle. It's not always fun. Now, we can have fun. We're going to have a Super Bowl party. That's really fun, right? Hopefully, that won't get sinful. If Tyler's team is in it, I think it'll all depend on what Tyler does. But uh, we can have fun. But our goal isn't to have parties. Our mission isn't the bouncy house. 
The goal of the church is to be set apart for God, isn't it? And to protect the purity of the bride of Christ. Joining Jesus in the mission of building the church means confronting sin. And it's painful. It is extremely painful. Uncomfortable confrontation is necessary on this road. And as we now put our minds back in Corinth, go back to 2 Corinthians 2 with me. Uncomfortable confrontation is necessary on the road to restoration too, as a sinner is restored to a local fellowship. And it all hinges on the repentance that he or she has. So let me read verses 5 through 11 again, and we'll finish by talking about that restoration process. Again, 2 Corinthians 2.5, it says, If any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much, to all of you. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him, otherwise such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end also I wrote, so that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Those who are involved in the church discipline process must be looking for repentance and be ready to restore. When Paul says in verse 6 that what they had done was sufficient, sufficient for such a one, I think what we need to have in view there is that this man has come to the point of repentance. The man who had caused trouble in the church had come to the point now where he should be restored publicly. He should be brought back in to the fellowship. And whenever we go through this process of church discipline, we must be looking for that repentance that would indicate it's time. It's time to restore. Now, through the Word of God and through an attitude of love, it's our goal to help the sinner feel the weight of his sin. That should have been what the Corinthians were doing in step one, helping the sinner to feel the weight of his sin. But as you see the sinner come to humble repentance, step two needs to be kicked into motion restoration, to be brought back into the fellowship. And if you're wondering how you can know if a person is truly repentant, well, the first thing you need to know is we're never going to be omniscient. There are a lot of people out there who know the right things to say. If they were especially around the church for some time, they, they know what to say. But if we're going to look for a sign, I think it needs to be this, humility. There is no genuine repentance without Genuine, humble confession in humility. For someone to voluntarily, willfully say, I was wrong, I have sinned. For someone who willfully makes himself lowly and say, I, I'm submitting to whatever you think I need to do in the truth to make this right. I just want to make things right. That's true humility. For those of us who have had children, we know the difference between forcing your child to say, I'm sorry, and the child willfully coming to you and confessing and asking for forgiveness. 
One of those is much more common than the other, isn't it? (laughs) But what a profound experience it is when the child comes out of a guilty conscience and says, this is what I've done. I'm sorry. That is true, genuine humility, isn't it? Not the arm twisting. Tell your brother you're sorry. (laughs) Maybe that will lead to repentance, but in the moment, that is not repentance. There's a difference. And embracing the repentant is where the rubber meets the road. Embracing someone who is truly penitent. That's where all of this application comes into play. Because this is the desired outcome of the process. There are some churches that go through a church discipline process, and it seems like they never had restoration in view. Their whole goal was to get somebody away and just be done with them. But that is not the goal. The goal is unity, true restoration. In his harsh letter that is now lost, Paul reminded the church in Corinth that restoration is the goal, and this was a test for them. Look at verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in that harsh letter, that's how I understand that, that I might put you to the test. You see, this is, this is where it really comes into play, where the rubber meets the road. Will you welcome him back? The one that people knew for so long, and they were living perhaps under false pretenses, and then his sin came out, and he was addressed. Can they really welcome him back and look him in the eye? And say, come on in, brother, we love you. That is a test. That's a true, genuine test of faith. Homer Kent, in his commentary, he said, Discipline that has its desired effect must be responded to with appropriate action. Vindictiveness and an unforgiving spirit are as sinful as the offender's deed. Isn't that so true? The vindictive spirit, the holding on to bitterness, that's just as bad as the original sin that caused it in the first place. You can't just forgive on paper, Christians. You can't just do that. But you must embrace your brothers and sisters in Christ who repent. You must embrace them again in Christian love. Paul tells them, starting in verse 7, that they must forgive. We talked about this last week briefly. And as I stated then, this is a word that emphasizes the free grace of the situation. As he now comes back in humility, they are to bestow favor on him once again. They are to approve him once again, to vouch for him once again, to freely and graciously forgive him. And Paul is commanding them as an apostle that they restore him, that they do this. It was not an option Paul is not saying, I think it's a good idea. Like, tactically, I think this would be best for the community if you did this. That wasn't what Paul was saying. He was commanding them as an apostle what was right in Christian love. And Paul's heart was already there. You see in verse 10, Paul says, I'm with you. Let's forgive this guy. And if my theory is right, and this man was anti-Paul and was causing an anti-Paul team to rise up in the church... Once again, we have to dwell on how amazing this is that Paul says, I've already forgiven him. You forgive him, my heart is with you. Let's do this together. Let's restore him together. Paul's not telling them, do as I say, not as I do. (laughs) His heart was already there. And his challenge to them was not without his own involvement in that sense. He wanted them to forgive for everyone's benefit, for the good of all involved, because of the way God has designed His church to function. 
Do you remember what Jesus taught us in Matthew 6 about forgiveness? Here's some strong words from Jesus. In Matthew 6, starting in verse 14, if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And that would be fine right there. We could stop. But then he goes on to say, but if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. What does that mean? Your salvation hinges on you making sure you go through and remember every offense there is and make sure you truly, genuinely, authentically, thoroughly forgive everybody that's ever caused an offense. Well, I don't think that's a bad goal to put in front of you, but I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I think what Jesus is saying here is that your relationship with God is going to be severely hindered if you harbor bitterness in your heart. If there is someone that you are to forgive and you refuse to do so, you're doing, doing it out of an attitude of self-righteousness. There's no way around that. You're being self-righteous. And what's your relationship going to be like with God if you're walking around all prideful? I can't believe that person did that to me. You've totally forgotten what God has done for you. You've totally forgotten the immensity of God's forgiveness for all the things you've done wrong. And your relationship with God is going to be severely hindered. So it was for the Corinthians' benefit that they forgive. It wasn't just for the man's benefit. It was for the Corinthians' benefit. But also it was for the man. You see again in verse 7, he says, this man could be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. Paul here is saying, you're going to destroy this guy if you don't forgive him. He will be utterly destroyed. So Paul was commanding them in the presence of Christ, he says in verse 10. That's a phrase that he used a few different times, but I think here we can remember that Christ said in Matthew 18, where two or three of you come together in these matters, I am there with you. And Paul says, in the presence of Christ, I'm urging you, forgive and restore this man. Remember, Paul told this church, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And what did Christ say? You don't forgive your brother seven times. How about seven times 70, right? Imitate me as I imitate Christ. I forgive him. Join me. Let's forgive him. Let's restore this guy. Let's not destroy a person. Because churches can destroy people. Churches have destroyed people. They've used what power God has given them in a way that is just foolish and wrong and harmful. They've been bad stewards of their influence. And Paul is here saying, don't crush this man. He's repentant. Embrace him. So when we forgive, again, it's not just on paper. It is to be attended with comfort, with love. You see that in verses 7 and 8. We are to strengthen the one who is repentant. I am of the conviction that the one who is restored must feel restored. And we can't control other people's feelings. And that can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. But as far as it depends on me, when there's a restoration happening, I want that person to feel it. Not just that we sign some paper saying he's okay, but we're still going to treat him like, you know, tax collector guy. No, no, no. I want that person to feel the love. John MacArthur said in his commentary, after sorrow has done its convicting work, it is to be replaced by joy. <laughs> that is so true. It's to be replaced by joy. Well, this all leads up to verse 11. 
Because there's another party involved here that Paul hadn't mentioned to the end of this passage. Here it is. We do all of this so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan. So now we get this added element, and it's a pretty big element. Satan's involved. And that has to be in our minds too as we go through processes of discipline and restoration. When we forgive others and when we promote the unity in the church, we are hindering Satan's schemes. There's some good news for you. If you needed some extra motivation, why you should forgive your brothers and sisters in Christ, it hinders Satan. It limits the work of Satan as he tries to fight the church. You know that uh, Satan does actively seek to harm us. Ephesians 6, you put on the whole armor of God. Why? Because you're fighting the fiery, flaming darts of the evil one. You know what that means? They're coming, and they're coming your direction. So you better have a shield. You better have armor on. In 1 Peter chapter 5, that apostle reminds us that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking one to devour. He's at work to destroy. He's at work against the church of God. It says here that we are not ignorant of his schemes, verse 11. Is that true of you? Are you ignorant or are you aware? It's a good question to ask yourself. Satan's at work in the world. Are your eyes open or are they closed? We all have to work on having our eyes open. And it's to see his schemes or his intentions, it could be said. Satan's intention is to take advantage of our sin, to hinder the work of Christ, to use our sin, our pride, our nastiness that hangs around with us in our Christian life to break up and divide the church. The gates of hail... uh, (laughs) Second time today, we're standing. I sound like I'm from Missouri again. The gates of hail. The gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's church. What what does that mean? That the gates of of hell, they're involved here. Satan's involved. There's an activity of evil influence working against the church. And so we have to be aware of Satan's schemes since he is greedy for victory over Christ. Perhaps you've known a coach in your life if you've played sports. There are lots of coaches out there who are greedy for victory. And I'm doing some officiating of basketball, and there are even some fifth and sixth grade coaches who are very greedy for victory. And I kind of wonder, are you sleeping at night or are you thinking of 10, 11, 12-year-olds playing basketball? What's wrong with you? But they're just so addicted to winning, and they hate losing. And a lot of times, that is what makes a good coach, someone who is absolutely obsessed with winning. Well, Satan is absolutely obsessed with victory. Now, we know that he's not going to get the ultimate victory. We know the end. Praise God for that. We know that in the end, we will rise from the dead and we will crush Satan under our feet, Romans 16 says. Okay, death, where's your victory? Death, where's your sting? We'll have the victory in Christ. But we're not there yet. And in this life, you can see it in 2 Corinthians 4, we have spiritual activity going on that's blinding people, that's affecting people, that's, that's attacking people. And there are victories along the way that Satan has. He doesn't get the ultimate victory. He will not prevail against Christ's church ultimately, 
But you better believe there are victories that he might have in your life or in certain local churches. And so we are not to be ignorant of Satan's schemes, but to be aware and to fight against our adversary. That's how the Bible presents him, adversary. He's our opponent. We are to have victory in Christ over the one who wants to take advantage of our sin to divide us, to tear down the church. The intentions of Satan should have an effect on us. I'm not saying become obsessed, but I'm saying hopefully in proportion to what we have in Scripture, you have an adversary whose intentions are to destroy you and your church, and that should have an impact on how you live your life. He's greedy for victory, and what does that look like? Let me just give you three quick things. Satan's schemes, one of them is to divide and harm the church by stoking the flames of self-righteousness. Do you think that Satan is pleased when you become self-righteous? Well, that was his first sin, wasn't it? I will make myself like the Most High, Satan said. He was going to make himself like God. And so if we get self-righteous and prideful, I think, I think he's okay with that because we're imitating Him. We're not imitating our gentle and lowly Savior. We do well to remember Proverbs 10, 12, which takes us away from self-righteousness by saying, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Our pride doesn't cover sins, but love does. And genuine love is always without self-righteousness. A second aspect to what Satan is doing is seeking to make us bitter in the church. I think this is probably what Paul had in mind. A bitterness in the church, causing us to ignore the, the mass of God's forgiveness toward us and be focused on the little sins committed toward us individually. Jesus told parables like this, didn't He? About the unjust managers who would be forgiven a massive amount, but then turn around and choke somebody out for owing them a nickel. We're not to be that way. We are not to be bitter. Bitterness is Satan's way. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 14, that we are to pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. That they're be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. No root of bitterness is to spring up in the church. That's Satan's way, not God's way. Thirdly and finally, I think we could say here too that Satan's intention is to cause us to forget that God is the one who is ultimately offended in all of our disputes. I, I get the impression that the Corinthians had forgotten that the one who was ultimately sinned against in their situation was God Himself. Not Paul, not the church, not anybody else, but God. And if you lose sight that all sin is ultimately an offense to God, not to you, but to God, well, that will send you right down the path of division. That will hinder your sanctification. That will hinder your ability to worship God. Remember what Jesus taught us about when you go to make your sacrifice at the altar? If you know that your brother's got something against you, you leave that there and you go make it right. If you're harboring this kind of stuff in your heart, if you're forgetting that God is the one ultimately offended, so, so you're not being forgiving, your worship will be hindered. 
Perhaps you'll be like the man who doesn't live with his wife in an understanding way. Your prayers, even, will be hindered. This is important stuff. And so as we close and consider the importance of not only discipline but restoration in the church, I want to take the opportunity here to have a moment where we dwell on what restoration looks like. What happens when we go beyond forgiveness? Because restoration isn't just saying to somebody, you're forgiven. You can sit in the back. (laughs) Year by year, you can move up a row. (laughs) That's not what restoration is. So let's consider what this looks like. Public restoration. Well, again, I mentioned it last week, but I want to say it again. Paul was interested that this man in Corinth be restored at that same fellowship. I think that's so key. Paul wanted the people who were offended to embrace the man who had offended them, for all of them to be back in the same room, to be back worshiping God together, having communion together, having their love feasts together, spending time day by day looking at the Word of God together. That's the goal. That's restoration as the Bible presents it to us. That's an important element to remember. And Paul here is clearly in this passage putting the onus on the church. What they had done was sufficient, and it was time for them to restore. They had to love. They were obligated to love in the gospel. And we might get the feeling now that this just can't happen today because we see it so rarely. Can this really happen in 2023, even at a church like ours? Can this type of restoration take place? Why does it seem so impossible to us? Why, why does it seem like, no, that just, that person will have to go elsewhere. They'll have to have like a, you know, Paul and Barnabas moment where they just had to go two separate ways. It seems like that's what we think every time. But we have much more in the Bible about restoration than we do about, well, agree to disagree. Why is it so difficult for us to imagine this? I think a big part of it is our culture. We do live in a throwaway culture. We even throw away human life in our culture. We don't take seriously the value of other people when the rubber meets the road. It can be very easy just to say, nah, we're done, and not press into the reality that God cares about this person, and if he or she's a brother or sister in Christ, Jesus died for that person, has forgiven that person, has placed that person in the church. We have hearts, too, that are vindictive, hateful and emotional, naturally. We have a hateful and emotional instinct, don't you know? Each one of us does, where we want to get retribution, where we want what we want in order for there to be genuine restoration, that all of our demands have to be met. I think all these things work against us in this process. And so what we have to do is grow up. We have to grow up in Jesus. Restoration is not for the immature. You who are spiritual, restore such a one. We have to have a maturity about us in forgiveness and restoration. And the biblical model that we have is that in the church, you have redeemed fallen people together. 
what's the worst that could happen, right? <laughs> Here we are. You get fallen people, but they're redeemed, yet they still sin, and you put them all together. I often talk about with marriage, you put, you put two sinful people together in a marriage and you're bound to have fireworks, right? There's no perfect marriage. Well, in a church, there's no perfect church. We're going to have conflict and strife. But the biblical model continues and says when that strife comes up, when sin comes up, it is to be confronted. The church is to confront that sin in-house. And there's to be discipline in-house. There is to be discipline that takes place first in private, and if necessary, it moves to the public. And then there's to be restoration, and the restoration is to be in-house. All of this takes place in the same fellowship. You have the people together, sinning against one another, being confronted, being disciplined, being restored. You don't have church hopping. You have a deep love for the people of God and for the advancement of the gospel. And you will go through anything to advance the cause of Christ. Well, I want to close with um, a couple of excerpts from a very good book that should be on every pastor's bookshelf. It's titled Beyond Forgiveness. And it's a book that walks the reader through a church discipline and restoration process uh, of a pastor, actually, who was caught in sin. A pastor whose name is Greg in the book. He was caught after 13 years of secret acts of adultery, even with somebody in the church he was in at the time when he was caught. The book walks through the public confrontation of the sin, the extended discipline process, and the eventual restoration of this man in the church. So I want to read a couple portions, first jumping in with the church leadership as it's recounted here where they were first uh, talking through what they were going to do. The author here says, We are constantly taking private corrective action to deal with those who carry bad habits from the old life into the new, or when an experienced believer falls into one of Satan's snares. I prefer this method, the private method, to all others, and would have liked to have been able to quietly deal with Greg's sin in such a fashion. But Greg's sin was public against the whole body of Christ. It was scandalous and destructive, and it required some sort of open public rebuke. One church leader replied, but this will destroy his family, probably break up a marriage. I'm not sure I want to accept that responsibility. Again, we were struck with the enormity of our responsibility. It was so important that each step be carefully measured and biblically right. Slowly, painfully, reluctantly, we all began to realize that we were on the brink of an extremely difficult public experience. We had no alternative but to protect the church and correct a brother. But there was a need to be fully aware of our biblical authority for whatever action we took. And we still had to determine the precise direction we would follow. Well, dozens of pages come after that that outline the precise direction that they took in confronting this man and beginning the process. At first, the man wanted to you know, run away, as everybody does, but he stuck around. And it was a long process where God did some amazing things in his life that were, according to the flesh, very destructive. He lost nearly all that he had, but his wife stayed with him. And they were both willing to go through the restoration process in the church to submit themselves to the church, helping them grow from this experience. 
And so the church, or for the, the book, actually ends with a chapter titled, Restored. And just as the confrontation was public, and it was a church-wide matter, the restoration, after a couple of years, was also a public matter for the church. And it closes with the author recounting what he said to the church that night when they restored him. He says, We asked ourselves when it all began, is it possible? We asked Greg, are you willing to stay right here in the body and let us love you back into the ministry? The hardest and most crucial decision that Greg and Joanna made was that one. Yes, he answered. I watched Greg week after week as he came into this building. Consider this. It was painful for him to walk among his friends. We were all fully aware of the pain that was in his heart. But it was here, in his obedience and in our present, that his healing took place. And now the healing is complete. Greg and his wife Joanna are different people. They were great people when they came, but today they are among the greatest I know. And I want to thank them publicly for the way they have submitted themselves to God and to the church. I don't know that I've ever experienced such a willing submission and such a painful one as I have seen in them. The author says, I then drew them to me, arms around them both, and said, Greg and Joanna, I want to thank you for the way you've allowed God to work in your lives. I want to thank you for being responsive to the Holy Spirit. God has possibly made you better qualified to minister today than anybody I know. It seems so impossible, doesn't it? But God is able, and nothing is impossible with God, even healing broken relationships. Let's pray. God, we do thank you that you have initially healed us individually. You have come to us, and you've restored each one of us to you. You've forgiven us our sin, and you've washed us clean, and you've given us gifts that we might know you and serve you the rest of our days. Help us, Lord, to have your heart as we deal with people, that we would want restoration, that we would want gospel success, and that above all things, we would want your glory, that you would be honored, that you would have first place in everything. Lord, help us to reconcile where we need to, to, to weed out all that bitterness to love and serve you well each of our days. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.